Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Clear Channel's iHeartRadio. Welcome to the Jane Wilkins Michael Show. Better than before. An hour of beauty, health, fitness, and lifestyle advice from renowned columnist and author Jane Wilkins Michael and her guest, top experts in their fields. Join Jane's campaign to become better than before. Now, here she is, Jane Wilkins Michael. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Jane Wilkins Michael Show, Better Than Before, on iHeartRadio Talk. I'm Jane. I'm coming to you live from New York City. I want to thank you so much for being with us. Well, Christmas is almost upon us, and I actually love, love, love this time of year, especially when I get the chance to introduce, as always, the woman who puts the merry in Merry Christmas, my jingle bell rock star, my producer, Lori Houston. <laughs> Hi, Lori. <laughs> how do you, how do you, how do you, uh, how do you how beat I come that up with one? these each and every week? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so, you know, where did the time go? I'm still like in June. So anyway, <laughs> but we are, no, we're, we're here. Um, anyway, my lovely, we have a great show today. After the break, we will meet Greg O'Brien. An amazing story. He's an award-winning investigative reporter who was diagnosed in 2009 at age 59 with early onset Alzheimer's, and he felt compelled to document this experience in a new book on Pluto, Inside the Mind of Alzheimer's. You will be fascinated by his journey, so stay tuned for our conversation. But first, the greatest gift you can give your loved ones at this time of year, or any time of year, actually, is the gift of a healthy heart. Here are some very sobering facts. The Centers for Disease Control lists heart disease as the leading cause of death in the United States. It affects people of all ages and backgrounds. And every year, nearly one in four deaths in the U.S. is attributed to heart disease. So here to talk about what to do to either prevent this or get our hearts back on the beaten track is my next guest, Dr. Srihari Naidu. He's a renowned interventional cardiologist and a noted expert on all matters related to the heart. Dr. Naidu is the director of cardiac catheterization of the Cardiac Catheterization Laboratory at Winthrop University Hospital, and he regularly lectures on this topic throughout the United States and Europe. So he's a very important person to know, and more importantly, to listen to and take his advice to heart. I am very happy to have him here today. Welcome to the show, Dr. Naidu. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, you know, doctor, before we go into other matters of the heart, you are an interventional cardiologist. How is correct, this correct. different, um, for lack of a better word, from a, a regular cardiologist? Right, right. So regular cardiologists, we call them general cardiologists. And they go through training uh, on heart health and how to uh, diagnose and treat disorders of the heart. Uh, but they, don't, they stop short of doing invasive procedures on the heart. So interventional cardiologists such as myself, we do a little bit of additional training, about a year or two of training, utilizing catheters and other types of 
uh, tools to reach into the heart <coughs> from various access points and um, diagnose actual blockages or other problems of the heart and treat them minimally invasively. <coughs> so interventional cardiologists generally spend their time seeing patients in the office, but also once they make their diagnoses or if they need more information, they will take the patient to what's called the cardiac catheterization laboratory, which is basically a procedure room where we can uh, put some light sedation on patients and then utilize a variety of techniques and imaging to really take a deeper look into the heart, into the arteries of the heart, into the chambers of the heart, uh, sometimes a little bit into the lungs and some of the vessels uh, surrounding the heart, and finally make some decisions about uh, you know, really what's going on with the, with the person's heart that might be causing some of their symptoms. And finally, at the end of the day, we may be able to fix some of those um, with some of these catheter-based techniques. It's an amazing procedure. And, and you know, doctor, it hits very close to my heart because my husband had a heart attack about six months ago and he needed two oh, more yeah. coronary stents. And that is, that is, that is your area. Uh, I would have him on the show right. with me, but then um, we need like a three or four hour show just hearing about what he went through. <laughs> but, <laughs> but right. let's just say I was there when he collapsed and it was the most frightening moment of my life to be sure. Um, but before, yeah. we, you know, we did get into to, to other issues. I do want to talk about his specific case and it, uh, you know, it affects many people, men and women alike, and most people don't know they the whatever symptoms are are heart related to begin with, and that's because what I learned it affected his right coronary artery, not the left, which apparently give you those classic symptoms: the pressure on the chest, you know, right. the pain yeah. that radiates to the left arm or jaw. And he had these sort of weird symptoms for a few weeks leading up to, you know, when it mm. actually happened, and they were mostly centered in his lungs and his stomach. And the distress became so severe that one morning he woke up and declared, and I kid you not, I know what's wrong with me. I have been poisoned. And I might add, he hmm. said that while looking very suspiciously at me. So <laughs> as, as if, right? But right. That, doctor, about right coronary blockages and why some people sure. are fooled into thinking they're indigestion and they can end up in the ER or, or worse. Right, right, right. So, you know, first and foremost, you're absolutely right. The heart disease we've talked about historically has been heart attacks, and really that is the elephant in the room. That is the main thing that we treat. And although we treat a variety of things now, really rushing in in the middle of the night or at any time of day to try to open blockages is really our claim to fame as interventional cardiologists, what we're most proud of and what's most meaningful to us, for sure. Um, what's tricky, though, with heart disease and coronary disease and blockages is that um, a, it is very unpredictable at times. I mean, we can, we can tell what kind of a patient, what uh, confluence of risk factors and genetics might make them more likely to have a heart attack, but really it's very, uh, very poorly understood when a heart attack might actually occur. And even our, some of our best tests, like stress tests, are not exactly ideal or accurate in predicting um, when and, and uh, why and how these may occur. But getting at your question, it is true that uh, we typically think about heart attack as very classic symptoms where they have uh, significant chest pressure or chest pain in the center of the chest. Uh, they may have, hold their, their hand to that, holding their heart um, very classically. Sometimes those symptoms radiate up or uh, progress up to the jaw and sometimes down the arm, and there might be shortness of breath. Uh, those are the classic symptoms of heart attack, and you're absolutely right. They are variable. Some people, it's estimated up to maybe 30% of people, 25-30% of people, especially women, 
oftentimes don't have the typical symptoms. And some people have, may have no symptoms at all, mm-hmm. which is really troubling because by the time that the heart gets really damaged, now they have heart failure or they have other symptoms that are already way past the mark uh, or point where we could uh, do some significant improvement. But adding on top of that, some of the uh, some of the difficulty is that there are different arteries of the heart, and there's two main arteries: the left coronary artery and the right coronary artery. The left branches into two: one that goes to the front of the heart, the other that goes to the side of the heart. But then the right is usually the second biggest artery out of those three: uh, two being on the left and one being on the right. And that right coronary artery typically goes to the back of the heart. Now, the reason that causes different symptoms is because it runs in an area that can trigger some of our other nerves that run up and down the body. And those nerves typically also get entangled or are involved in our digestive tract. And that's where we get into other trouble. That artery also runs near the esophagus, which is the feeding tube that goes from your mouth to your stomach. And so when that artery is in jeopardy, and that jeopardy may be off and on over the course of, as you're you're saying, it might be weeks or months, Mm -hmm. people may actually experience symptoms of heartburn, or reflux, uh, or nausea, or even GI upset with some you know, transient uh, diarrhea or watery stools. And who would think that those types that's of symptoms are due to the heart? Yeah, yeah that's yeah. what you didn't hear. But we see that all the time, and that's yeah. probably why they call it heartburn, because it's, right, uh, right. It's, uh, <laughs> it mimics, mimics a heart attack, and you know, one of us is getting burned by that. <laughs> right, and, and I guess the, the advice is if you're taking Tums and for a prolonged period and it doesn't work, you know, go to your doctor and cardiologist and say, hey, look, you right. know, just, uh, check it out a little further, which is what he ended up doing. Now, I'm fascinated by stents, actually, because the, the fact that, you know, you can put a, a which I guess looks like a, um, a spring of a pen, right? A stent. It's this little yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. And you can thread it through your groin into your heart. I mean, wow. Right. <laughs> I, for one, am very Yeah, so this, this technology was invented, you know, about uh, 30 years ago now. So it's really a relatively recent invention. Our whole field started with this. Um, but yeah, it's really the size of a, a spring in a pen, in the old-fashioned pens. Um, and it's crimped down over a small, even smaller balloon. Um, and that balloon is threaded up through catheters into the arteries that we watch on X-ray images uh, using a type of contrast to look at the arteries, and we basically put it right where the blockage is, and we dilate it up with the balloon and leave it behind, and that really just pushes the blockage away and allows blood to flow properly. Together with that, we have uh, invented over the years uh, various uh, blood thinners, some of which uh, I'm sure your your, uh, listeners have heard of, Mm -hmm. Um, and these blood thinners have also helped keep the clots away and keep the stents open. So these stents are made by various companies, including Abbott Vascular, um, that I think we'll be talking about later also, but some other heart conditions as well. Um, but you know, we owe a debt of gratitude to, our, to all of us as uh, cardiologists and then many of these industry partners who have really led, led the way in this country. Now, have stents, um, the invention of stents, now I had a source one 10 years ago, so they're not new, new, but um, before right. that, were bypasses the only option? Has this sort of yeah, done so away with that drastic? Here's the problem. The problem is that bypass was a, was a great option for patients who have chronic disease. So if you do an angiogram and you find they have significant blockages in multiple territories or even in significant areas, then yes, bypass was the, was the only answer that was available other than medications. When you're having an a, a emergent heart attack, though, you know, by the time you get to bypass, it may take two or three hours to get the operating room ready and, and put the heart on, on a rest and get the patient uh, in there and get the surgeons in there. And so 
that's already too much time for damage to occur. By that time, within a half an hour to an hour, you've already uh, killed most of that muscle. So the reason our field has really changed the dynamic in uh, this country and the world is in that at the, at the exact moment when a heart attack is happening, we can literally get up there within five, ten minutes and open the artery and abort the heart attack. And uh, this is whole mantra of time, time is muscle. And you can't wait for three hours for a bypass because then you're bypassing into dead tissue. It's already, the damage is already done. Yeah. And who wants a bypass anyway if you, can't, if you can avoid it? I mean, well, that's big that's surgery. True. Nobody you know? wants a bypass if you have something else. Yeah. I know, right? Exactly. But you must have the steadiest hands. I mean, how you can get that little spring up into your heart? <laughs> I mean, it's like, wow. <laughs> I, am, I am very, very Well, impressed. like I said, we're aided by a lot of technology. But, but yes, still, everybody in this I mean, field, uh, they're typically... <laughs> put a little instrument and go. And I think the patient um, can watch, no? I mean, can they see it on a screen? They, can. they have Absolutely. to be like uh, something that's sedated. I mean, what if they say, oh, no, We no. give them some sedation, but if they're relatively comfortable, we give them a little bit, and they're typically awake still so they can see everything on the monitor. Now, they're looking at x-ray pictures, so they're not experts at that, but we can certainly point out exactly where the blockage is, how we can see there's no flow there. And then at the end of the case, which is five, ten minutes, maybe half an hour later, you can see that the, the blood flow is resumed. Um, and so, yeah, it is fascinating to do that for us as well as to show the patients as well. Wow. What if you have an anxiety attack when something's in your heart? <laughs> you don't want that either. Well, that's why we have plenty <laughs> oh, of medications and wonderful nurses around. <laughs> a little more. Knock me out just a little bit more. Um, now, doctor, that's let's right. talk about your patients in particular. What are some of the most common complaints that you hear about um, the heart in general? Yeah, in general, the most common that, uh, that people come to the office with are sometimes very benign things, such as uh, benign palpitations, fluttering sensations. Sometimes people present with lightheadedness. Um, if that gets severe, they may have actual passing out. That we take very seriously. We also have patients with chest pain or chest heaviness uh, and these types of atypical symptoms of, uh, for, heart, for heart attack. Um, or heart blockages. That's another typical presentation. And then the, the last big bucket really is heart failure. And that has become, I think, the main epidemic now in the world, especially as we just, just talked about heart attacks. Less people are dying of heart attacks now, fortunately, because of these therapies. But even in those patients, as they continue to live, they may have uh, heart failure symptoms because depending on when they come in, they may have suffered some damage. And one of the challenges in heart disease is that if you have some damage to the heart, Sometimes that progresses, whether or not that there is more, uh, more actual damage to the heart. So the way the heart responds to initial damage is by telling the body to uh, produce certain, certain hormones and certain other substances that ultimately may continue to damage the heart. So we spent the last 20, 30 years figuring out the response to heart attack that ultimately leads to heart failure and try to combat that. Despite those efforts, heart failure admissions and heart failure incidents have increased every year for the past 10 to 20 years, such that now there's a lot of people, multi-million people, living with heart failure symptoms of, of either you know, mild, moderate, or severe heart failure. And that's when most of us are targeting our, targeting our efforts now. And that has really uh, brought about the dawn of this whole new field in interventional cardiology called structural heart disease, where we're trying to change the structure and function of the heart, not just the blockages, but the effects of damage to the heart, either to the muscle of the heart, as in a heart attack, or to the valves of the heart. 
Well, that's, that's, I mean, you know, not that I'm a hypochondriac or anything. Lori will attest to that because, of course not. <laughs> I had my hip replaced recently, and I think all the whole hospital took the phones off the hook because they didn't want to hear my thing. Well, did anyone ever die on your table? Did you cut a femoral artery? You know, but as you're speaking, my well, hand is sort nothing of, like that. Um, no, 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 so not patient- you. I'm saying I asked the doctor, <laughs> oh. and I go, no, 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 thank you. But um, as my, my hand is sort of slinking over to my heart as we're speaking, um, <laughs> but the heart is a muscle, right? And But it's the only muscle muscle if right. we worked out the rest of our muscles so so hard every single day we'd have a great bodies without even trying so it just right. keeps beating no matter what <laughs> hopefully right so right um, that's a the, great yes so you're you're asking an interesting question which is that um if you work out other muscles they get better more efficient if you work out the heart it's not necessarily the case uh we don't have good evidence that if you for example if the heart uh, works harder, works faster, does more work, it'll um, be healthier. In fact, on the opposite, we do have evidence that if the heart has to do more work than it's meant to, such as if there are leaky valves where the heart pumps forward and then blood splashes back into it and has to pump even harder the next beat, or if there are holes in the heart where the blood is getting you know, a, a backfill of blood that it wasn't supposed to get, actually that kind of quote-unquote working out of the heart where it's working harder actually leads to damage to the heart later on. That being said, exercise for the rest of the body is extremely beneficial to the heart because it makes the job easier for the heart. If the muscles in your body are really uh, toned up and are very good at extracting oxygen, well, then they don't need as much oxygen coming to it. They're they're much more efficient, and then the heart can tolerate more and more damage without the body or or the being as a whole noticing any dysfunction in the heart. Yeah. So well, part we're going to leave our audience with lifestyle advice from you, doctor, for sure. That's how sure. we're going to end this between the nutrition and the lifestyle and the exercise, which is really, really important. So, yeah. but, um, but first, let's talk a little bit about valves. I hope you're impressed with my knowledge of the heart. I've, I've had so I much <laughs> heart knowledge here for so many years. My husband actually had tachycardia for years, and this is his fifth stent. So I, I know okay. heart. But valves, that's something else. There's aortic and mitral. Correct. And right, what's right. the Aortic and mitral. And mitral. Sorry. What is the difference? I'm not that. I'm not that. <laughs> I'm not that good yet. Yeah. Well, valves are sort of a new thing, it. even for us as. Yeah. Even for us as interventional cardiologists, it's nothing that we focused on, and it's really a blossoming field over the past really ten years or so. So the valves are basically the doors in the heart, and the muscle of the heart is not very smart. It doesn't know where to pump blood. It just pumps. It just squeezes. And the way the heart determines which way things go is that when the heart squeezes, one valve opens and one valve closes, and they're just built that way. So that as the pressure rises, one will open. It's an open door. And as the pressure decreases, the other one will, uh, will open. Um, so the aortic valve is basically the exit to the heart. Uh, blood comes in through the mitral valve, and then the heart squeezes. It shuts the mitral valve closed, and then the aortic valve opens once the pressure reaches a certain amount, and it's pushes that blood out of the aorta, that goes to the brain, all the other organs of the body. So we didn't talk about valves for a while because we had no way of treating valves other than some medications. Um, And then ultimately, if the valves got uh, really leaky or really tight, we would offer open-heart surgery, and they would go in um, just like a bypass, but rather than fixing the arteries, they'll basically put these artificial valves in. Some of them come from cows, some of them come from pigs, um, they're put together on different uh, stent-like meshes, uh, similar to the stent, uh, stents in the, in the arteries. And they're basically sewed into the place where the old valve was. And they work well 
but they typically last about 10 to 20 years. Um, but again, it's a very, very open procedure, very uh, uh, significant risks to that procedure. Uh, first and foremost, maybe stroke, and then risks on the lungs, risks to be on a ventilator, and all the risks of major surgery. But uh, as you mentioned, a lot of people don't want open heart surgery, and especially as you get older, a lot of people who have valve disease are older. They're 70, 80, 90 years of age. And I think our culture you know, over the past 10 to 20 years has changed. As people have gotten healthier, they're doing what you're advising. You know, they're, they're changing their diet, their exercise routine, they're eating better, they're having a healthier lifestyle, um, better mind-body connection. And they're living longer. And so our, our assumptions on what we do with an 80-year-old or a 90-year-old have changed significantly. So nowadays, if somebody's very healthy, why not take a look at their valve and do something other than surgery so that they can continue to live? And some, some people nowadays live well into their 90s and even longer. Hopefully, yeah. So these valves are now being replaced basically or repaired uh, through the same types of techniques from the groin, uh, as I mentioned, with the stents. And that's the real breakthrough technology, and that's been the, the hugest um, increase in uh, what we do as interventional cardiologists over the last 10 years. So when you mentioned the new new um, ways in, to treat, is there something, and I read about the mit- mitro clip, that, does that just clip right. off so you don't leak, like you're, it doesn't basically, leak out? You know, basically to boil it down, it's like a clothespin. It'll basically clip the two doors of the mitral valve together right at the spot where it's leaking the most. So if you have, you imagine almost like two curtains, um, they're, they're supposed to be the door and they're supposed to shut, um, but where they meet in the middle, there may be leakiness. Um, some of these people have extreme leakiness there, and what we do with the mitra clip is we go in again through the leg, through the femoral uh, vein. It's not the artery, but the vein this time. We go up the femoral vein into the right side of the heart called the right atrium. We then pop through the wall from the right atrium to, to the left atrium uh, using a small needle, once we're in the left atrium, now we're sitting right above that mitral valve, and actually we see the jet of blood that's uh, backsplashing away from the heart back towards the lungs, and that's the leakiness we want to target. Any amount of leakiness that's happening in that valve is an inefficiency of the heart. So the heart thinks that it's, every time it squeezes, all the blood is going in the proper direction. It's going to the brain, your heart, uh, your, your heart itself, the, the lungs, everywhere else in the body. So, However, if there's leakiness, you're wasting some of that. And so what we do is we, we hone in right on the area of maximum leakiness, and we basically put this little clip on it. The clip is then attached by a string uh, to the outside, so we, we watch it very carefully, we partially release it, and then at the same time we're looking on ultrasound to see how much the leakiness is improving. And if we can get a leakiness to improve from severe uh, all the way down to minimal or mild, we will take that spot and we'll release the clip and, um, and we've done a great service to the patient. Oh, that's, that's really fascinating. And a lot of people, I mean, not, not to bring me into it, of course, but um, a little heart murmur, does that, is that like a collapsed valve? Does that lead to what you're talking about? Do I need a, a clip? <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the trouble with murmurs is that there are murmurs that are benign. There, yes. there are murmurs that progress and then there are murmurs that are clearly pathologic. Um, if you're listening carefully enough, I think a lot of people will have some murmurs, but yeah, absolutely. People with murmurs should be checked out. They should have an echocardiogram to make sure that the murmur is not from something that might continue to, de- to deteriorate. Because as I mentioned, some of these valve diseases end up affecting the heart. If you have a leaky valve for too long, then the heart muscle itself gets affected, gets weaker and weaker and weaker as it tries to rise to the challenge of that inefficiency of the leakiness. 
Oh, and then no. ultimately, even if you fix the leakiness, now you have a heart that's too weak to even, you know, to even pick up the slack once the leakiness is gone. Oh, oh my goodness. Well, please clear your schedule, I doctor. Know. I will be there. <laughs> just don't, don't take any new patients. I will be there. All and right, I'll clear out in a few weeks. But I do want to end um, our interview on, on the note that we talked about, lifestyle, which is really important. I always say that genetics loads the gun, but lifestyle pulls the trigger. And, you know, I think right. that's so important to know that. And, and in fact, just th- today I was reading about, um, there's a report on, on cancer that it's not only bad luck and, and you know, and genes, it's also um, a patient's reckless lifestyle and poor in- environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so, turning to the heart, how much impact does your lifestyle have on your heart health? You know, let's start briefly with nutrition and then work our way into exercise. Sure. So, yeah, so I would say nutrition is a huge part of it. Exercise is a huge part. And I think what we're learning also now um, is that, uh, you know, sort of de-stressing your life and having good uh, sleep habits and these other aspects also are very, very important on top of diet and exercise. So I, I speak a lot about all of those to my patients. Um, If you talk about nutrition in in, in particular, uh, that field has really evolved over the past uh, few decades. Um, To be honest, there's there's been uh, really a dearth of research on what nutrition will improve heart health. What we do know is from retrospective observational studies looking at population of patients, and of course we know that high cholesterol is linked to it, high blood pressure, diabetes, obviously smoking, um, these are risk factors for it, but what is the common pathway? Well, typically that common pathway is damage to the arteries of, uh, leading to heart attack. That being said, there's all kinds of other things that can cause valve disease and other muscle disease that includes high blood pressure and so salt intake. Some of these things also impact your blood pressure uh, and that can impact your heart. So in terms of diet, you want to have a diet uh, that first and foremost, in my opinion, maintains an ideal body weight. That means you need a diet that really matches your exercise and metabolic um, output so that you maintain an ideal body weight and you minimize the fat buildup in your body that we know is linked to the metabolic syndrome, diabetes, and ultimately heart disease. So first and foremost, I tell patients that it is about, it is to some extent about calories, but only in relation to your metabolic um, output and your exercise level. And that is going to change as you get older. As you get older, you, your metabolism decreases and you ultimately require less food. Uh, now, in terms of the composition of the food, it's very difficult for patients to, uh, to modify their diet in such a way to maintain a healthy balance and to maintain a healthy uh, ideal body weight. But in general, you want a diet that's uh, rich in fruits and vegetables, rich in nuts, um, low in uh, the simple carbohydrates, certainly low, in, uh, low or no sugar, low or no soda, um, all these processed things, that's all bad. Um, and then really keep an eye on how much you're eating. I think in our society, and you know, I was born and raised overeat. in Long Island, yeah, um, we, we overeat. And I think yeah. there's a culture of not knowing when to stop. Um, that is true. That is true, unfortunately. I mean, that's a big part of it. And I, I try to teach my patients to recognize their own body's cues on when, they're, when they are satisfied, but mm-hmm. not full. Um, if you're already eaten to the point you're full, you have eaten too much and right. all of that, you know where that's going to go. All of that extra yeah. is just riding around in your system. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and no, it goes, right to, it goes to my thighs in case anybody's interested. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then men, it goes to their gut. Men will say this all the time. If they eat heavy for three or four days in a row, 
on day five, they notice that their gut is a little bit bigger. They'll notice that. That's not good. That's not good either. So, doctor, I think we're going to stop on that (laughs) lifestyle note because you said something very, very important. um, It was a pleasure, great pleasure to speak with you, and thank you so much for your wonderful advice. Um, Where can uh, our listeners, and of course me, find you? Because you know I'm next. Sure. As soon as so I get you, out you of can the find stadium. me at uh, at Winthrop Hospital. So it's www.winthrop.org. Right. And if anybody wants more information on the MitraClip, which really is a breakthrough technology by Apple Vascular, I think they have a website www.mitraclip.com. Um, so both of those uh, can be utilized by by our listeners. Thank you. Thank you again for being with us. When we return, You're welcome. Speaking with Greg O'Brien, it's a fascinating story. You are listening to The Jane Wilkins Michael Show on iHeartRadio Talk. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As listeners of our iHeartRadio Talk Show know, Jane Wilkins Michael is one of the foremost experts on all things health, beauty, and fitness. Jane has just released her highly anticipated new book, Long Live You, a step-by-step plan to look and feel better than before. In it, she shares a collection of advice, tips, and personal antidotes along with lifestyle suggestions from some of the world's top beauty, health, and fitness experts, many of whom have been interviewed on this show. Are you hoping to make positive health decisions, improve your emotional well-being, establish a support system, give something back to your community and the world? Jane's new book will help you look years younger and also live a longer, healthier, happier, and more beautiful life. You can order Long Live You, your step-by-step plan to look and feel better than before at your local bookstore or at Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com, where it's available for delivery or as an ebook. Or go to Jane's website, janewilkinsmichael.com. Now, back to the Jane Wilkins Michael Show. Want to know where you can hear Jane Wilkins Michael's show better than before? Well, that's easy. You can tune into Jane via Clear Channel's iHeartRadio, Spreaker, Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, and at bmajor.org. Now, back to Jane Wilkins Michael and better than before. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to the Jane Wilkins Michael Show on iHeartRadio Talk. I'm here with Lori, as always. And now I'd like you all to meet a very, very inspirational person, Greg O'Brien. First, let me tell you a little bit about him. Greg is an award-winning investigative reporter who was diagnosed in 2009 at age 59 with early-onset Alzheimer's. Acting on instinct and true journalistic grit, he felt compelled to document his experience. And he began compiling a blueprint of strategies, faith, and humor. In other words, a day-to-day focus on living with Alzheimer's, not dying with it. And those notes became his latest award-winning book, which I have right in front of me, and it's amazing, On Pluto, Inside the Mind of Alzheimer's. Simply put, this man gives hope to those who are lost and a voice to those who cannot speak. Welcome to the show, Greg. It is an honor to have you with us today. Well, it's an honor to be here, so thank you very much. You know, Greg, first, if I might, I want to give our listeners some really chilling statistics about Alzheimer's, which will make your amazing story resonate even more. The numbers don't lie. They're numbing. 
it's been said that in 25 years, there will be two kinds of people in the world, those with Alzheimer's disease and those caring for someone with Alzheimer's. You know, we spoke of the prevalence of heart disease in our first segment, but Alzheimer's is the sixth leading cause of death in the U.S. and the only disease that's actually on the rise. More than 5 million Americans have been diagnosed today with Alzheimer's or related dementia and about 45 million people worldwide. And in the next 15 years, Alzheimer's is expected to exceed cancer and heart disease sevenfold. Um, And at the moment, there doesn't seem to be any medical breakthrough to prevent, slow, or stop the disease. And and Greg, I must add, it's a subject very close to my heart as my mother had Alzheimer's for 10 years. And it was was a very trying experience for me, I think more for me than it was even for her because she was oblivious to what was happening around her. But of course, I wasn't. So Greg, please... Remember, so they're, the caregivers are a central part of this story. They're heroes. Right. And um, by the way, on the statistics of the major diseases, it's the only major disease that's on the rise and for which there is no cure. Um, th- th- there are incredible things that uh, are going on in the research world. Um, closest to me is Dr. Rudy Tanzi and the Cure Alzheimer's Fund. Uh, Dr. Tanzi is. is uh, um, uh, Harvard trained and at Mass General and is, is uh, people could Google him. He's one of the top Alzheimer's experts in the world. And, you know, they're getting close to uh, new medication, but um, they're not there yet. And um, a, a cure for Alzheimer's hasn't really been defined, um, just like ultimately there is no, you know, cure. Or we can cure cancer, but what we do in a lot of cases is we prolong the progression of the disease, so you might die of something else. But in prolonging the progression of Alzheimer's, I mean, 60% of my short-term memory now is gone in 30 seconds at times. I don't recognize familiar people at times, including my wife on a few occasions. I can't recognize familiar places and see things that aren't there and deal with tremendous rage. And so if, if, if um, a quote-unquote cure for Alzheimer's is defined as slowing and progression. I don't know. I'm not so sure people who are dealing with, with this kind of progression want to prolong it. So just to put that in perspective, but there's tremendous yeah. work and the Congress now is taking it more seriously. And, and I applaud the work of, of, of those in Congress on this. Yeah. Now, Greg, tell us a little bit about you. Um, when did you realize something was, was terribly wrong? Cause it obviously at 59, that's that is young. I mean, most people don't think of it as, as, as yeah. striking someone who's fifty nine. So, what were your symptoms at that point? Well, first of all, I, I had uh, a serious head trauma that uh, doctors uh, say unmasked a disease in the making. And if anyone wants to go Google when they when they look at uh, high risks or things that um, can bring on Alzheimer's, they'll find that that two of the top ones are uh, family history and. In my case, my mother, my maternal grandfather, my mother, my paternal uncle recently, and my father before he died were all all dealing with with Alzheimer's, you know. And uh, um, I started the symptoms uh, uh, several years ago, and you know, I've had a front row seat, so I I, I recognized them, and I was in denial. And then um, I started the symptoms before my head injury and after it. 
I, I had, it was very difficult just doing the day to day. And as a journalist, you have to multitask. So mm-hmm. that's when I started, you know, reaching out, reaching out for help. And, um, people, um, have a, st- a, a stereotype of Alzheimer's is just not true. And that's what my book is about. And no one in this country, include me as well, really wants to do anything until things are at a crisis. Well, we're at the tipping point in Alzheimer's right now, actually beyond the crisis, but people see Alzheimer's because they want to be in denial, as I did, as an end stage, you're 85, 90, and you're going to die. And Bugs Bunny once said, don't take life too seriously because nobody gets out alive. <laughs> and um, But there are people, Alzheimer's, and again, I cut up a frog in high school, So, uh, but as a journalist, I've studied it, so people should go online and, and, and see the primary source for this, but... Uh, Dr. Rudy Tanzi will tell you that the plaques and tangles of Alzheimer's for someone who's predisposed to have it can start when they're in their 30s or 40s. And um, and so this disease uh, is not your grandfather's disease, and it comes slowly, and, and um, it affects people in different ways. So um, some people, uh, early on, it can rob speech or communication. Uh, with me, it hasn't because I fought that because I mm-hmm. saw it with my mother. I used to think of my brain as a big garbage pail where I'd throw all sorts of crap in, some good, some bad. Mm-hmm. And in Alzheimer's, your ability to process uh, diminishes. So now I think of my brain as a flower base. But I believe if you have what the doctors call a cognitive reserve, which is a, a blessing of inherited intellect, mm-hmm. you can pick and choose what you put into that flower base. Right. And... Um, because the writing and communication is is, um, is really my being. That's what I've chosen to do. But the other things, the executive side, the left brain, it's it's in a free fall now. So it's, there's just no stereotype for this. And people need to understand that younger people who are getting fired from their jobs because they're afraid to talk about this. And um, this is really ha- this really has to stop. So yeah, I was I'm I was watching the. I was watching the Glenn Campbell documentary because he also has Alzheimer's and, and he could sing well into his, um, you know, the, the progression right. of the disease. And that's because, as you mentioned, with your intellect, he was always, he always sang. I mean, music was, was what he did. So he was able to retain that um, and, and he sang beautifully up until, well, I mean, the, the documentary yeah. was a few years ago. But do you, do you think that the, the fall jarred it? Do you think it would have been later had you not fallen or, yeah. you know, your head trauma? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, 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 again, I cut up a frog uh, in, in high school. Before, just leaving this point because I'll forget, um, and it means that literally, with, with Glenn Campbell, it's, it's his muscle memory. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in Alzheimer's, uh, what they do is they move people, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here in a layman's term, to focus on the right brain, the creative side, the writing, the, 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 the painting, music, and dancing as a way to um, uh, accelerate the memory and um, it, 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 the left side of the brain, the, 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 you know, the, the, the side that does the calculation, it's, it, it's hard to sometimes regenerate that. So they move people to the creative side. Glenn Campbell is a good example of that. So, yeah. and that's why I continue to write every day and exercise. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah. I forgot your question. So you have to ask no, no, again. no, no, no problem. Um, I, so, you know, I think that, um, that Alzheimer's is something, we all fear, and especially since you know I have a genetic with my mother. I mean, there is a, a proclivity yeah. toward it. Um, are, are you, you're you're afraid, aren't you? 
Oh, of course. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm terrified, but you know, you don't, I can't even tell you how many times I've, I've forgotten my keys or lost my cell phone or, you know, and I remember one year when my kids were little and we went shopping, I loaded them into the car, but I left the bags on the street. You know, of course, far be it for them to have said something, you know, when we drove off and they saw the bags on the street, but you know, what, what is, what is it that differentiates the, the normal, uh, if, if that's, the word um, forgetfulness well, that comes with I'm, something. I'm glad you you, you, you asked. Um, uh, by the way, I also carry the Alzheimer's gene marker gene APOE4. So that's another element that can bring it on. And with respect to the head injury, um, again, I cut up a frog, but but if you go online, you will find that head injuries um, are a um, uh, ever-present risk in Alzheimer's and, 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 and how it can as the doctor said, unmask a disease and making bring it on earlier. Um, but with respect to memory, there's a difference, uh, the doctors would tell you, between what you might call a senior moment and Alzheimer's. However, senior moments can, 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 can segue into Alzheimer's. So just because um, you lost your keys, um, don't always think it's a senior moment. If you're losing your keys every day, you probably should go get a clinical test. But there's a difference between losing your car keys and not knowing you have a car, yeah. the car keys. There's a difference not knowing between, what your keys are for, yeah. Yeah, and there's a difference between forgetting where your car is parked, which we all do, and not knowing you have a car. And mm-hmm. on Cape Cod, it's a rite of passage. We take our trash to the dump. And... Um, uh, and so a while back I took my car, which was a yellow Jeep at the time to the dump and I threw everything away and, and I said, okay, how do I get home? I could call my wife or my kids or friends. And I drove a yellow Jeep, a four-door yellow Jeep it was sitting right in front of me. And in that moment, that moment when the light flipped off of my head, I didn't recognize that as my car. No, I know with my mother, she had moments of, like she would say, but then she corrected herself. Like she'd say things like, yeah. oh, I'm going to Chicago, which is next to Germany. I mean, these random thoughts. And then we'd go, really? And she'd go, oh, no, no, I'm just kidding. But she was aware enough in the beginning to have uh, corrected it. And then, of course, as she got more advanced, then it, it then she didn't know. As a matter of fact, when yeah. at some point I couldn't take care of her anymore because she was really very, you know, she was very advanced. And I, I, I did put her in a nursing home and she thought she was in a hotel. I mean, she was, oh, I thought, great. Hey, look, you know, she thought she was in a resort. She'd asked the residents to meet her at the cocktail, uh, at the piano bar at eight. And, and, mm-hmm. and they'd look at her like, what, you know, and she'd say, well, blue is your color, you know, and, but she was always, she was so gracious because she had, you know, she had always been gracious and she can continue this. But, you know, I tell you something, Greg, I was hoping that she was like an alcoholic and those symptoms were just something because she drank secretly and, and it mm-hmm. turned out having the alcohol blood test that she, she wasn't. But, you know, you think of dementia and Alzheimer's, um, what is the difference be, or is it the same basically? Well, now that's a good question because um, everyone asks. Alzheimer's is, and, and again, people should study, the, I mean, should, it's not my place to say should. It would be helpful if people study this and go online. Alzheimer's is the umbrella word for cognitive decline, of which Alzheimer's is the most popular, so to speak, affecting the most people. There are other, other types of dementias, but, but Alzheimer's is the most prevalent. So, 
dementia is really a code word for cognitive, severe cognitive decline. Um, so it's a code word, not a disease. It's, it's, it's genetically, uh, generically a disease, but, but it's, it's the umbrella. So mm-hmm. think of um, an umbrella and, and all of the different Alzheimer's disease, um, you know, below it. But, but it, it strikes, in talking about your mother, it strikes in, in different ways. I've often said to people um, with Alzheimer's, uh, and I know out west it's different, but, you know, ask people how many, how many lived in a house with, with a basement. Doc here, everyone raises their hand. How many have done the laundry in the basement? Everyone raises their hand. How many have done the laundry in the basement at night? When someone in the kitchen didn't realize you were up there and shut the light off in the cellar, what did you do? And if you're me, you're dropping F-bombs, telling people yeah. to turn the freaking light back on. And I said, that's what early Alzheimer's is. It's a light that flicks off in your head. And the other night, I don't sleep at night much. My mother didn't either. And um, I was up at 4, wide awake, went into the bathroom in a house I've lived in for 34 years. Didn't know the light went off, didn't know where I was, who I was. And called my the, the the house phone. I had my cell phone because I used it as a battery. Called the house phone to ask my wife where I was. You know, I mean that's. And then do you like know? Are those like fleeting episodes, and all of a sudden you know where you are, or do they? Yeah, I mean, yeah. So like in the early stages, the light goes on, the light goes off. I mean, I'm putting, and you got to laugh at some of it um, because if you, you know if you don't have a sense of humor, if you can't laugh at something. Uh, that's threatening you, um, then you're intimidated by it. And uh, so my book, which is easy, the best way to get it, by the way, is on Amazon, uh, although it's in bookstores around the country, is, you know, it's, it's a book about faith, hope, and humor. And um, I'm putting my cell phone and car keys in the refrigerator now or the microwave. Um, the other day, my wife got up, looked at the dishwasher. I've been washing some of my business cards. <laughs> Well, you have to laugh at this stuff oh, I, because I, I had spilled coffee. Yeah, I, I spilled coffee and my brain said, okay, Wash pal, them. put them in the, in the dishwasher. Well, I was fascinated so, that the home, the nursing home had bingo. And I'm saying, how in the world do residents, you know, remember like B9? And she goes, oh, that's easy. And B9, we associate. Your tumor is B9. <laughs> so I thought, okay. Yeah. I mean, you have to, you do have to have a sense of humor. I, I tell you, it's, it's yeah. it, as awful as it is when you, when you, um, it's sort of the, the scary stage, I think, is, is uh, you know, when you, the doctor had said she would step over the line at some point and not come back. And, and that's actually what happened um now let yeah, me ask that's you this. what i call going that's what i call going up to yeah and, i mean that's that that scares me um but before we talk about your book let, let me ask you this question how um you know if there is a genetic component such as my mother um although she might have gotten it from other things I don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. they're saying now that she had red hair and, the, you know, she got older. She had red hair dye on her hair like once every two weeks. And they banned that particular color for carcinogenic reasons. I'm wondering mm-hmm. if they've found that certain chemicals um, have, have, you know, facilitated that. And it had nothing to do with any sort of genetic component, but because of environmental factors. Mm-hmm. But... You know, I guess my question is, how sure is it that as a child you're going to get it, or is there no research that well, well, please say I, and, that and there is no? That's <laughs> a good subject to to bring up. I mean, my family tree is loaded, so yeah. Um, 
not it. most people, <clears throat> this is what the doctors say, who, who uh, <clears throat> have Alzheimer's or will get Alzheimer's, um, it, it's, it's, not, it's not the result of a family gene. Um, and, and there, there are a, a lot of variables involved, but I, I got to believe that when you look at the stuff that we breathe and, and I'm not a, a, a tree hugger, by the way, I live on Cape Cod, I'm an environmentalist in my own way. I, I, I want to say beautiful things, but, but I, I have to say that with the stuff we put in the air and the stuff that we breathe, uh, look at what, how it's affected, you know, the rise of cancer. I got to believe it, it has had an impact yeah, so. on, on Alzheimer's. And plus, we're living longer now. Yeah. Well, my mother was the first person. I mean, we have lots of lunacy in my family. Don't get me wrong. But for Alzheimer's, yeah. um, you know, I actually donated her brain to science because I wanted to know what what um, well, what was going what was going on. And they came back with. I hope report. I hope if that happens with my family, uh, they wait until I die. Yeah, well, we did, that's, actually. That's we gave joke. her that uh, <laughs> courtesy. That was a joke. <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm hoping at least well, someone is listening. Lie still for a minute. We so. won't take your brain out I, to, to study. I, um, but are your children fearful of inheriting it? Yeah, there's a, probably a 50% chance they could. And um, But I believe that um, there may be... Um, there may be cures or ways of slowing um, that 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 hold off the symptoms, you know, in in in, in their years. But yeah, I mean, I, I I worry about that a lot, and and you feel guilty, and I feel guilty about it. Um, Understand? But um, you know, my mother, it, 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 my mother never had that. Feeling, I'm sure, um, but you know, something. Well, I'm Irish. Greg, I'm Irish Catholic, so it's like being Jewish. You just feel guilt, so. Yeah, well, that's it. Yeah, you're surrounded by guilt. But, um, the, but you know, the thing is, too, I mean, they. when I read the report, I, I had the option of, of knowing, I guess, going and taking a test to find out. And, you know, something I don't want to know. I really don't because I don't know if I want to live the rest of my life. I mean, again, I don't have the, the, the classic symptoms, of, as you've been describing, although who knows. Um, maybe I do. <laughs> I'm just not aware. But... Um, I don't know. I don't want to know for sure because then I think that the, for the rest of whatever in my life, I'm going, well, when is it going to hit? When is it going to strike? It's just like, you know, the gene for breast cancer. You're not necessarily going to get it, but, you know, there yeah. there is a chance. So, you know, how do you – do you just look at your symptoms to diagnose it or do you yeah, – there, There's no doctor? guarantee – there's no guarantee if you have the gene that, yeah. that you're going to have Alzheimer's. And, and Lisa right. Genova, who wrote – Stole Alice, which was made of the movie, and Julianna Moore won the Oscar. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's a Harvard neuroscientist, a good friend, and she lives in the town over from me in Chatham on the Cape. You know, she once said, um, when, when you think of Alzheimer's, um, think of the old scales of justice. So we're looking at the scale on the left. And in my case, she says, um, your grandfather died of Alzheimer's, the scale tips down. Your mother died of Alzheimer's, the scale tips down. Your paternal uncle died of Alzheimer's, the scale tips down. Your your father was diagnosed with dementia, the scale before he died, the scale tips down. You uh, started the horrific symptoms, had a brain scan uh, and clinical tests, uh, all of that which confirmed the diagnosis, the scale tips down. You, uh, you had uh, a serious head trauma. In fact, I've had two, and the scale tips down. And you have the, the, the marker gene, APOE4, you're not getting out of it. So 
you understand all those variables, it, it, and that's what's so damn hard about trying to find a cure. It's not just one thing, and um, and and it's 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 going to take the brightest minds on the planet and continued appropriations from Congress, and Congress deserves to take a bow for what they've done this year in 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 uh, um, appropriating additional monies for much needed uh, research. And um, but it's it's so so if if you have a gene. Um, I, w- I think you're, you're right. I mean, um, unless you're, unless you're experiencing symptoms that are affecting your day to day, which, you know, that ha- a long time ago, I realized that, mm-hmm. um, just by finding out that you might have a gene, I think Doesn't, it's more distressing yeah. than anything else yeah, until, no, until right. you actually start to experience and then, and then go to get a clinical, this is very important, get a clinical test, but, and I, my family doctor is my best friend, right. but don't go to a family doctor, go, go to a specialist. Mm-hmm. And that's very important. Yeah. And have that done. And then, if if and here's here's the the living with Alzheimer's part. If if it comes back positive, there's an awful lot. There's there's plenty of. I'm a baseball player when I was younger. Plenty of baseball left to play. Um, you know, sure you got challenges, but there's medication which I'm on the legal limits of. Um, there are strategies about educate about education here. Yeah about exercise and, and uh, exercising your body and your mind. And in that case, it's good to know as soon as possible if you have those symptoms because there are things that can help you. Yeah, I mean, that's why I do crossword puzzles every day. I mean, we're speaking of humor. We're going to talk about your book uh, in, in a second. But I went to see my mother. I think I had just come from the gym when she was in the home. And, and they said, Emily, your, your daughter's here. Um, and she looked at me and she said, and her whole life had been concerned with beauty. She was a very um, renowned beauty expert. She wrote books on beauty. And, but she looked at me and, of course, mm-hmm. my little ponytail and no makeup. And she goes, no, that's not my daughter. And then she goes, Emily, yes, it's your daughter. It's Jane. She goes, no, that's not my daughter. You know, this went on for a few mm-hmm. times. And finally they said, well, why don't you think that, it, you know, why do you think that's not your daughter? And in a moment that I thought was, of, you know, lucid, she looked at me in the eye and she goes I would never have a daughter that homely <laughs> so I said oh no oh, so anyway yeah. uh, well you know she that Anyway, some things, your traits just never leave you, right? Your personality. Yeah. So, Greg, we have a, a couple more minutes. We have about um, two two more minutes, but I do want mm-hmm. to strongly urge everyone um, to buy your book, On Pluto, well, Inside the Mind of Alzheimer's, and you can find that on Amazon, correct? Amazon.com. Right, yeah, Amazon. It's in bookstores around the country, but Amazon, you get a hard cover, cover or a Kindle. Right, um, and, and it's a uh, it's a it's a wonderful, wonderful book. It is your journey. You have chronicled your journey, which is something that most people don't get to read about because most people don't start um, when you started. So by the time, you know, they just don't get a chance to write a book like this, which is so mm-hmm. important for anyone either who who has Alzheimer's or as I said uh, you know has someone in the family who has Alzheimer's or, or just fear themselves for having it as we said the statistics are not necessarily in, in anyone's favor so uh, I applaud you for writing this book uh, for being here right. with us today um, and as, again it was a it was a an, an honor to have you, and, and I very much well, enjoyed our conversation. You have a great sense of humor, and keep up the good work. <laughs> what can I, well, it's, what it's can an honor to be on, and, and in my book, I, I try to profile everyone else through my own eyes by telling them, hey, folks, if this can happen to me, this could be your story as well. So 
um, there's some people look at it and say it's a memoir. It's not a memoir. It's 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 really I, I use myself in it as a window into other people, and that's yeah. the point of of the approach. Brilliant, brilliant work. Again, I urge everyone to buy it. Everyone, that's our show. Greg, thank you again right. for being with us. Thank God you, Lori, as always. Um, I will see you next Let's week. Stay in touch. And in the meantime, I wish you a wonderful Christmas and a new year filled with an abundance of health and happiness and many, many blessings. And that's my wish for our listeners out there as well. This is Jane Wilkins-Michael. Until next time, be wise, be well, be better than before. Have a question for Jane and want to be on the next Better Than Before show? Drop us a line via instant feedback at bmajor.org. The Jane Wilkins Michael Show is brought to you by Express Scripts and is produced by Major Radio for Clear Channel's iHeartRadio and bmajor.org. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.